Talk Recorded live. Hello, everyone. This is Carolyn Yeager. I'm sub-hosting for William Fink this evening. Uh, all of you who are here obviously knew that in advance, I'm sure, and I thank you for being here. Um, William is taking some time off, well-deserved. He wrote to me yesterday that he was going to Washington, D.C. today. I'm sure sure he'll have some interesting stories to tell about that when he gets back. He's got his camera with him, too, so it should be really good. Uh, I appreciate the confidence that he has shown in me by asking me to do this program for him. And I appreciate his loyal following, too, all of you. And uh, I welcome you to call in tonight in a little bit, uh, a little bit later. I'd be happy to take a call from any of you and talk to you about anything that I've uh, said or anything you'd want to talk about. Now, I picked the subject, A Fighting Christianity, from some reading I was doing for my last Heretics Hour program on education in the Third Reich. And by the by the way, I have a new guest that is someone who has not been on Internet radio before, I don't think, for this coming Monday night. Her name is Christine Miller. She's a very bright lady with an interesting life, so do tune in to hear her. In fact, Christine translated a paper by Sylvia Stoltz sent out recently by Gunter Deckert, and I have taken an excerpt from that paper to begin my talk tonight. I'd like to preface this quote um, from Sylvia Stoltz's paper and uh, one come, and a following one that I'm going to give um, by uh, reminding you that uh, most of what you hear about the National Socialist attitude toward Christianity is wrong, or at least it's distorted or incomplete. Certainly much is based on books and other writings by the usual culprits with an anti-national socialist agenda. Some examples of this are the following. Now, from Sylvia Stoltz, I uh, quote from her. In his concluding remarks, Jay Schaefer, let me explain who Jay Schaefer is. He is a German who was uh, Joachim, Joachim Schaefer who was sentenced to six months in prison for a letter he wrote to a student giving her some information about the Treblinka transit camp. And uh, so Stoltz writes um, in his concluding remarks at his trial, he emphasized the far-reaching consequences of this subject with these words. He said the charge that the Germans committed genocide to this day still burdens our people. He pointed out that the Holocaust has been turned into a religion, carrying within it the seed which brings about the destruction of Christianity. He quoted the French-Jewish movie director, Claude Lanzmann, who some of you have probably heard of, uh, as saying, and this is a known quote, if Auschwitz is true, then there is human suffering that makes Jesus' suffering negligible. Christ is thereby false, and salvation will not come from him. Auschwitz is the refutation of Christ. These are outrageous words that should um, outrage real Christians, but many Christians uh, are not real Christians anymore. And uh, I don't know whatever was said when he first said that, but his movies are still, you know, he's still considered a great, uh, you know, a, a, a a Holocaust uh, historian of some type, and uh, Christians remain fairly quiet. And, uh, you know, I deduce from things like this that there is no fighting church. Uh, there is no fighting church anymore. Is there a fighting Christianity? Well, my next uh, 
uh, quote here to to uh, as an example of uh, what what we find when we look to find out what the, the attitude toward uh, toward uh, uh, what we're told about the National Socialist attitude is um, from this EddieDriscoll.com, uh, just a blog that I came across, and in it he um, he is quoting uh, John Lukacs, who wrote in the history of the Hitler of history. He wrote a book called the Hitler of History. Lukacs is a Hungarian-born British historian, a Jew. He has a Jewish mother and a Roman Catholic father, who dislikes National Socialism because he sees it as a form of populism, uh, as he sees socialism. He sees them both the same as forms of populism. Rather strange, but. The greatest historical figure in his mind is Winston Churchill, so you can get an idea about him from that. He's written a lot of books. He's a great Anglophile, and and uh, he, he moved to uh, to England. And uh, he wrote he wrote this um, in the history of Hitler. Martin Bormann, and and this is correct. This is true. Martin Bormann, in a party directive, included a sentence. Christianity and National Socialism are not reconcilable. But Hitler ordered the removal of that sentence immediately and the instant cancellation of the directive. Yet at the same time, and often during the war, he told his circle that the business of taking the churches to task would have to wait until the end of the war. They, then they would be properly dealt with and German youth would be liberated from their influence. Well, he may or may not have said something like that, but if he, uh, because this is probably taken from table talks, which I'll go into a little bit later, but um, it uh, he was speaking anyway of the churches, not of Christianity itself. And people get that mixed up when they, you know, as though the two are the same. Now, what I, the reason I brought this up is because is because it went on to say that um, that this Dave Shiflet wrote and this is a the source of this is the National Review online and who is Dave Shiflet well I don't he's somebody he's he's just a writer uh he wrote it is that that Hitler said this it is through the peasantry that we shall really be able to destroy christianity hitler said in 1933 because there is in them a true religion rooted in nature and blood his countrymen, and so Shiflet says uh, that uh, Hitler's countrymen would have to choose, uh, quote by Hitler, one is either a Christian or a German, you can't be both. Now, where where did this come from? Where does Dave Shiflet get this information from? Well, there is a source, as I said, the National Review online, and here's what it says. A shocking story has been revealed. Adolf Hitler is not a Christian after all. Instead, he hoped to destroy Christianity. This news flash comes courtesy of a group of students at Rutgers University School of Law. Now, Rutgers University is in New Jersey, uh, Camden, New Jersey, and we know that New Jersey is full of Jews, and law schools are full of Jews, so we can imagine who this group of students is, or at least who they were led by. And he says, uh, go back, going back to this uh, this group of students uh, at Camden who have posted papers on a website detailing Hitler's desire to eradicate Christianity. 
The documents are from the archives of General William J. Donovan uh, and were originally prepared for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, so we can safely assume they are authentic. Now, William, I find this, you know, almost hilarious, but it also just irritates the heck out of me. William J. Donovan, for those of you who don't, don't know, was the head of the American OSS, which was the precursor of the CIA. It was the American spy agency during World War II. And uh, he was in charge, his agency, one, of, one, uh, one division that he was in charge of, was, uh, was creating ugly stories about Hitler during the war. And I've, I've written some articles about this, and they, they were some re- really some terrible stuff. And they're all Jews working for him. Donovan himself was not Jewish. Um, but, uh, of course, they, this was before the end of the war, and they didn't know uh, that they might not be able to uh, capture Hitler alive. And if so, they would be able to put him on trial, and then they would want to have all this material that, that he was putting together which is just a bunch of really vile, filthy stories uh, that they could tell about about him. And uh, but of course he he wasn't captured alive. He wasn't captured at all. So so they didn't get to use that material. But it came out later in different ways. And these students uh, were using something from there to uh, false quotes and so on. So I'm I'm using these examples to show the kind of stuff that that people run into, of course, all over the Internet and elsewhere. Uh, and it appears, it can appear to them to be very correct and true. And, and well, how can, you know, it, it, there it is, you know, and it's sourced in black and white and William Donovan, et cetera. Um, the, the, the IMT at Nuremberg, they, they knew what they were talking about, so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, this, this is the kind of lies. And when, I, when we look for the real Hitler, and uh, it's amazing what I found. It amazes me. I'm, it, I didn't know all of it. Uh, what, how, how much Christian, how much Christianity was approved of and discussed and talked about, and uh, and even embraced um, by not only Hitler but uh, National Socialists, many many National Socialists in general. Of course, there were those who who didn't like it. Mostly, they didn't like the church. Christianity, and actually Hitler didn't care for church Christianity. He didn't care for the churches too much, um, and less and less so as he was trying to run the country. But uh, well, so I'll go into that. But I want to tell you first that I came up <clears throat> with the title "A Fighting Christianity" from a speech delivered by Adolf Hitler in 1922. That was in the early part of his career. Some excerpts from that speech would not be believed by most people today after decades of this indoctrination. And uh, the indoctrination has meant to to make National Socialism out to be atheistic or pagan. And the truth is that there are many examples where uh, Adolf Hitler professed himself to be a Christian, but nowhere quite as strong as on this occasion. At least I I wouldn't think so. Uh, Here he said in this speech, and he also put it in a... uh, in a book, in his book, um, let's see, what is that? Um, in his book, My New Order, which I don't really know of. But um, he said, my feelings as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. 
It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them, and who, God's truth, was greatest not as a sufferer, but as a fighter. In boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage, this is still Hitler, uh, which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple, the brood of vipers and adders. How terrific was his fight against the Jewish poison. Today, after 2,000 years, with deepest emotion, I recognize more profoundly than ever before the fact that it was for this that he had to shed his blood upon the cross. There is some interesting commentary following this uh, speech where I, where I found it, so I'm going to read that. There are two features here which deviate from what, what many might expect to find in a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. The first, of course, is the anti-Semitism. While Christians in America today might find this bizarre, it really wasn't out of place in early 20th century Germany among conservative, moderate, and even liberal Christians. Nazi Christians didn't abandon basic Christian doctrines like the divinity of Jesus. Their oddest religious belief was a denial of the Jewishness of Jesus. But even today, there are Christians in Germany who object when Jesus' Jewishness is focused upon. The second unusual feature is the emphasis on traditionally masculine qualities, like the use of force, being a fighter, and taking direct action against enemies. Traditional masculine qualities played a very important role in Nazi rhetoric, so of course Nazi Christians preferred a masculine Christianity over a feminine one. True Christianity, they claimed, was manly and hard, not feminine and weak. When Adolf Hitler describes Jesus, my Lord and Savior, as a fighter, he is simply expressing a popular belief among other followers of right-wing political and religious ideologies. Hitler's Jesus, and the Jesus of German Christians generally, was a militant warrior fighting for God, not a suffering servant accepting punishment for the sins of the world. What's very important to realize, though, is that this image of Jesus is not limited to Nazi Germany. The idea of a manly, masculine fighting Jesus developed elsewhere as well and became known as muscular Christianity. Because churches had become so associated with women in feminization in the late 19th century, century Christian men began seeking changes in the nature of Christianity in Christian churches, which reflected masculine values. In America, this early form of muscular Christianity used sport as a conveyor of or moral values conveyor should be of moral values like manliness and discipline. Today's sport is used mostly as a vehicle for evangelization, but the basic principle that Christianity must be manly survives in other contexts. Many Christians today rail against the feminization of Christianity and argue for a more masculine, muscular Christianity that can help America maintain its place of dominance in the world. Conservative Christians in America are no Nazis, but neither were most conservative Christians in 1920s and 30s. They did, however, come out to support the Nazis because this political party promoted a religious, political, and national vision which people found appealing. Now, here's more Hitler. He also said, As a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated, but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. And if there is anything which could demonstrate that we are acting rightly, it is the distress that daily grows 
For as a Christian, I have also a duty to my own people. And when I look on my people, I see them work and work and toil and labor, and at the end of the week, they have only for their wages wretchedness and misery. When I go out in the morning and see these, he must have been, he must have said this quite early on. When I go out in the morning and see these men standing in their queues and look into their pinched faces, then I believe I would be no Christian but a very devil if I felt no pity for them, if I did not, as did our Lord 2,000 years ago, turn against those by whom today this poor people are plundered and exposed. Continuing with some commentary on this, Christians today find it implausible that their religion could have anything in common with Nazism. But they need to recognize that Christianity, including their own, is always conditioned by the culture around it. For Germans at the beginning of the 20th century, Christianity was often profoundly anti-Semitic and nationalistic. This was the same ground which the Nazis found so fertile for their own ideology. It would have been amazing had the two systems not found much in common and been unable to work together. Well, leaving that now, I'm going to uh, bring up a few things, uh, quite a few. I have uh, the 24th point of the party platform. <clears throat> I'm sure many of you are familiar with the fact that it is about religion, and it says we demand, this is the National Socialist Party platform, we demand a freedom of religious confessions in this state as long as they do not endanger the nation's existence or interfere with the moral sense of the German race. The NSDAP party argues for a positive Christianity, although it is not bound to any single confession, meaning any single, whether Catholic or, or Protestant or Lutheran. Uh, the NSDAP party fights against the Jewish materialistic spirit in and around us. We are convinced that the healing process of our nation can only be continued on the basis of the principle that public welfare has priority over individual welfare. This this takes in quite a bit of the thinking of the national of national socialism. Um, it, it once again, it's not just Adolf Hitler, but it's the entire party which everyone agreed to that has that um, argues for a positive Christianity. By that, we're going to go into what positive Christianity meant to them. Um, but uh, the fact is that. Uh, the members were either, they, they were not all strongly Christian, but at least they were not atheists. There, was no, there were no atheists in Germany, except maybe as some private, you know, as some people privately chose to believe that way. And, um, of course, Martin Luther is the, considered the great hero of, uh, of the Reformation in, in Germany. And he, he wrote that book, The Jews and Their Lies, in uh after he was older towards the end of his life, when he finally had his eyes completely opened. And this book is extremely strong in its language. And here's one quote from that Martin Luther actually wrote in this book. If I were to baptize a Jew, I should conduct him to the bridge leading over the river Elba. I should fasten a stone to his neck and should thrust him into the waters, saying, I baptize thee in the name of Abraham. Well, that you know, that was Luther's beliefs um, about. Uh, of course, most these people didn't know about Christian identity, and they weren't. Uh, they they weren't. They hadn't even probably been uh, uh, introduced 
to such a thing. Um, but uh, he he had come to believe that the Jews were the uh, the uh, school the, the people of Satan. Uh, he actually did, and he said so, and he came right out with it. But today, the Lutherans uh, pretend like he that he that's just an odd aberration that took place, and they they ignore it all. Now another speech uh, from Adolf Hitler. He said, uh, "Today Christians stand at the head of this country." I pledge that I will never tie myself to parties who want to destroy Christianity. We want to fill our culture again with the Christian spirit. We want to burn out all the recent immoral developments in literature, in the theater, and in the press. In short, we want to burn out the poison of immorality, which has entered into our whole life and culture as a result of liberal excess during the past several years. Um, Now, Nazi Christians didn't follow an idiosyncratic version of Christianity, nor was it infected with hate and nationalism. Uh, This uh, same commentary goes on. Everything about Nazi Christianity already existed in German Christianity before the Nazis came on the scene. So they they pretty much were following along with the the German tradition of being a Christian nation. But um, as I said before, uh, let's look at not just what Adolf Hitler said, but the entire uh, party programming uh, and was it a, was, did it approve of Christianity. Now, there's a, a book that I discovered, a very good book called The Holy Reich, Nazi Conceptions of Christianity, 1919-1945. It's written by Richard Stegman Gall, who is a member of the uh, politically correct, uh, you know, uh, uh, academia. But he has written, he he seems to have an honest streak in him, and he researched into Christianity in the National Socialist uh, Party and in their ideas and so on. And he came up with findings that surprised everybody. And he wrote it in his, in his book, and, and uh, I've read... Uh, Parts of his book, I haven't been able to read it all, but it's uh, it's quite uh, it seems to be a very good job of scholarship. Anyway, um, although we have to remember where he comes from, but here I'm going to uh, say a little bit from a review of this book. And the reviewer writes, and there has some quotes from the book in it. The reviewer writes the relationship between Christianity and National Socialism has long been described in a somewhat one-sided manner. In a number of recent books, several themes emerge. And then he mentions Stigman Gall's uh, book, and the most startling conclusion from his book will, will, that, that people will find probably most startling will be that Nazism was infused, infused with Christian beliefs. Granted, the views of Hitler and his associates were heterodox rather than orthodox by most standards. Well, that's good. Uh, But the so-called positive Christianity that most of them endorsed uh, shunned the Old Testament, rejected the Jewish origins of Jesus, and advocated a racialist understanding of humanity that denied the possibility of conversion because of the racialist understanding. Even these elements of the Nazi faith, however, had precedence within the Christian tradition. As Stigman Gall puts it, and I 
quote now, it's quoting now from the book, although the Nazis clearly departed from conventional theology in their rejection of the Old Testament insistence on Christ's Aryanhood, they were not simply distorting Christianity for their own ends or engaging in idiosyncratic religious meandering, meandering, period. Only by ignoring the intellectual precedents for these ideas can we argue that positive Christianity was an infection of an otherwise pristine faith. In other words, National Socialist Christianity followed from older Christian thought. That's my, my comment to that. It, they, they weren't inventing their own form of, of uh, Christianity that fit their uh, National Socialist uh, politics. Uh, now, ironically, uh, this is the commentary, the reviewer again, Sigmund Gall locates these precedents in the most liberal forms of 19th century Protestant thought, a theological framework that allowed for greater selectivity and skepticism when approaching the Bible and that strove for reconciliation with the science of the day, that is eugenics. Eugenics was the science of the day. Conversely, more conservative forms of Christianity, above all Roman Catholicism, proved to be less compatible with National Socialism. So, uh, it goes on, if the Christian roots of National Socialism have been underappreciated, the movement's links to neo-paganism and Nietzschean nihilism have been exaggerated. For many of its leaders, Nazism was not the result of a death of God in secularized society, which all these things have been put forth. And, and all these connections to Nietzschean nihilism and so on, which which this this uh, man has has found and said that, that th this has been exaggerated, and of course it has. Okay, so we're going to go. I'm going to go ahead now and look at uh, at some of the figures in the Third Reich and um, in the no in the in the party National Socialist Party and what their positions were and what kind of things were going on. It's, it's kind of interesting. Some of it's a little bit gossipy. But it's not really gossipy. It's just uh, the the uh, the, uh, argue, the the disagreements that they had all uh, based over religion. Now um, there is something I want to uh, inform you about the word Gott Glaubig, which uh, means God believer, and that was uh, that was a a big. Uh, it wasn't. A movement, but many people, it, it had a name of its own because many people left the, the church at that time during during the time of the uh, National Socialist uh, regime. They, le they left the church, mostly they left the Roman Catholic Church, but they still believed in God. They just didn't want to uh, participate in the in the in those kind of rituals. They 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 had a hard time believing in it and. Probably they had for some time, but when the uh, all, there was there was such turmoil going on during that time, and this led them to uh, feel that they they preferred to leave the church but still be believers. Um, so they were called Glaubig, God believers. Now the name of Alfred Rosenberg crops up. Uh, Alfred Rosenberg was a very important National Socialist. And he was, in fact, the chief ideologue of the party, and he was given that title in 1934. And uh, in 1930, his book, Myth of the 20th Century, was published, which laid out his idea of a German Christianity totally independent from the Roman Catholic and 
Protestant church organizations and hierarchy. Now, that wouldn't be a problem for those of you uh, who are uh, who listen to Christagenia radio, but um, uh, this is uh, th- this is pretty much the way it was. They wanted uh, the party was not against Christianity at all, but it did have a problem with the church. Well, Rosenberg had more of a problem because he was he was one of the most he was actually anti-Christian. Uh, he he was he and Heinrich Himmler were two of the premier uh, anti-Christians in the National Socialist Party, and uh, they were both interested in though in uh, they were far from being atheists. They were interested in German prehistory, Teutonic legends, Aryan heroes, Indian philosophy, and they had a, a strong dislike of Judeo-Christianity. Um, you, uh, this they they just preferred this. For Germans, but they were not in the majority. Uh, they had their area. They they were they were both uh, important in 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 the party and for Adolf Hitler. So they were able to kind of do their thing, but they had a lot of resistance from others. Uh, Rosenberg devoted a great deal of attention to the acquisition of libraries and archives, so that uh, have all this information about the Teutonic history and so on. And I don't see anything wrong with that either, um, and old uh, Teutonic heroes and, and prehistory and so on. And there was, uh, but there was competition between Rosenberg and Joseph Goebbels, Goebbels uh, who was a propaganda minister and minister of culture. He was much more uh, open, uh, much more friendly toward Christianity than Rosenberg. But but also they had this this competition uh, over who was in charge of what because. Goebbels was propaganda minister and minister of culture, and Rosenberg felt that he should be in charge of culture, um, and uh, that he was in charge of uh, ideology at that time. Now, Himmler created the Ananerbe, A-H-N-E-N-E-R-B-E. If you're familiar with that, that, that stands for, in English, Research and Teaching Foundation for Ancestral Heritage. He created that in 1935, and and he 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 was uh, he didn't like Christianity, and he he wanted uh, he wanted to focus on the uh, what I the, what I already talked about the old German history and uh, uh, Teutonic uh, legends and so on. And of course, um, he was in charge of the SS, so he he direct he turned the SS in that in that direction. Then there was this man named Philip Buhler, who I got interested in. Uh, he was made chairman of the Committee for National Socialist Publishing. He was a, a good party functionary. He was a loyal party member, and Hitler liked him. And I, I, he obviously did a good job in whatever he, whatever he was doing. Um, and uh, when he was made chairman of this National Socialist Publishing, his job was to inspect all political, economic, cultural, historical, biographical works for ideologic purity. There were real differences of, of opinion between him and Rosenberg, but he usually had the backing of Goebbels. An example, Buhler approved a book titled The Goal of Religious Education in the National Socialist Schools, written in 1936 by a party member, Albert Albertshagen. 
It argued that a religious renewal of the Volk had to take place on the foundation of an unconfessional Christianity. National Socialist, uh, that is, not uh, not under the uh, the um, official churches, but um, just a, Christ, a, a, a German people's Christianity. Now, the, the National Socialist education should start, according to him, with the personality of Jesus and should regard Martin Luther as the reformer of the religious education of the Volk, not just of the church. Rosenberg's office said endorsement of the book was not justifiable, uh, but the book was published anyway. Another example, in 1938, Friedrich Anderson's book, The History of the Master of Nazareth Without Legends or Theological Amendments, was approved by Buhler, but Rosenberg said it had nothing to do with the National Socialist world uh, worldview or Weltanschauung. He also complained to Hess that Buhler was infringing on his domain of ideologic oversight. He was, this is putting it kind of mildly. He was very upset about this, and he was constantly complaining about Buhler overstepping his uh, authority and infringing on on uh, Rosenberg's authority. But now he had to complain to uh, to Hess, who was uh, uh, Hitler's uh, deputy at the time. And when Rosenberg continued to complain, uh, he was told by Bormann, who was Hess's, uh, Hess's deputy or secretary, part of the party, uh, who also disliked. And we know now Martin Bormann was probably the biggest uh, disliker of Christianity in the party. So uh, he, but he was, but Bormann had to tell uh, Rosenberg that this was Hitler's own decision to. Uh, to approve this book, and that he, Rosenberg, should concentrate on his newer post as Reich's minister for the occupied East. Well, uh, there shows that uh, Hitler was much more easygoing about Christianity in the party. He didn't want to. He, he, he wanted uh, everybody to kind of have their, you know, have their religion the way the way they wanted to have it, and not to make any hard and fast. Uh, uh, ruled, but Rosenberg was big for, um, and uh, Foreman also, for purity and for uh, for uh, strict rules, and they really wanted to get to get rid of Christianity. But they they never did succeed. Now another disagreement between Rosenberg and Buhler was over Hans Kerl, another important person in the National Socialist movement dealing with with uh, Christianity. He was appointed Reich's Minister of Church Affairs. Hans Kerl, K-E-R-R-L. Yes, uh, Hitler did have such a ministry. On the other, on the one hand, Kerl was expected to mediate between those Nazi leaders who hated religion, for example, Heinrich Himmler, and the churches themselves, and stress the religious aspect of the Nazi ideology. On the other hand, in tune with the policy of Gleichschaltung, uh, which which is a German word for coordination or putting, you know, having everything working together in the, for the same purpose, coordinating everyone. Uh, it was Curl's job to subjugate the churches, that is to subject the various denominations and their leaders and bring opposing views into line with the greater goals decided by the Fuhrer. Indeed, Curl uh, had been appointed after Ludwig Müller had been unsuccessful in getting the Protestants to, to unite in one Reich church. 
that was called the uh, German Reich Church Movement, which Hitler had been uh, had actually involved himself in in bringing about, where uh, they were trying to work with the Protestant churches, who were, was the majority in Germany, but uh, not by a whole lot, but was the majority uh, over the Roman Catholics. But uh, the Catholics couldn't couldn't have done that. But the Protestants, they thought they could turn the Protestant Church into a German church with with uh, you know with the with the German nationalist ideas rather than this internationalist belief that these churches had. This is the big problem with the churches, and I'll, I'll be able to go into that a little bit later. But it's um, you know they are they do become internationalists because they they want members from anywhere and everywhere. And the National Socialists wanted a German church to keep it nationalist for Germans, and that would keep it racially German also. Um, and uh, when that failed, that absolutely failed when the, when the Protestant church leaders, uh, who, some of whom were willing to go along with it, and, and they were trying to convince the others, but finally there was a strong uh, um there was a strong group that just absolutely resisted and refused, and so the whole thing uh, finally uh, they got tired of trying to con- trying to do it and just gave up on the whole thing. It wasn't going to happen, and Hitler said that he wasn't it wasn't his job it, he he wasn't interested in forcing uh, church people to do what they didn't want to do, and if that if they didn't want this, then then uh, he would let it go and they could do what they wanted. So, so, so the Protestant churches remained uh, kind of, uh, you know, divided, as this because there's different sects in Protestantism, and that's that's the way it was. And there were some most most were very supportive of the National Socialist regime, but some like Niemöller and Bonhoeffer were very resistant and caused a lot of trouble. Um, and uh, I can talk about them later. Anyway, this curl. I wanted to have a representative from his ministry work within Buhler's committee to assist in the evaluation of religious literature. Rosenberg was horrified, but Buhler explained that he could not refuse party member Curl, who was, after all, a Reich's minister, and Buhler was not. Uh, Rosenberg, however, was. And Rosenberg protested that it was not the task of Buhler's office to determine the church ideological position of the movement, but that was the task of his office. He wrote to Hess that he would go straight to the Fuhrer if Buhler were not reminded that Rosenberg's office was the ultimate authority. Warman wrote to Buhler that uh, he refrained from appointing Curl's representative and that he should henceforth send all books touching on the relationship between party and church to Rosenberg's office for examination. But Buhler ignored this order the following year, he failed to send Hans Kerl's new manuscript, Worldview and Religion, National Socialism and Christianity, to Rosenberg's office for this examination. However, in the end, Hitler did ban the book because of the 1937 rejection of a Protestant Reich church, what I was just talking about, um, by the Protestant church council. So I guess because uh, because there was no Protestant Reich church, uh, he, he didn't. He thought, well, he wasn't. That book uh, didn't really uh, speak about. Well, I don't know what his reasons were, but anyway, he banned it for that reason. 
uh, Rosenberg sent a letter to Goebbels, then who and Goebbels oversaw the censorship, asking, uh, no, Goebbels oversaw censorship in in amongst uh, in the Reich. He 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 was the one who was the ultimate uh, censor, and Rosenberg sent him a letter asking him to halt all advertising of this book uh, that Hitler had had officially banned: worldview and religion, national socialism, and Christianity. But two months later, Bormann complained to Goebbels that the book had made its way into the Christmas catalog of a Protestant bookseller. So even if Hitler says, the, the, you know, put out and said, okay, well, no, the book can't be published, it, it was anyway, and it found it's, it was being sold, um, I know, in a, in a, uh, at Christmas time. So then uh, Bullard uh, defended himself in a letter to Bormann, saying he did not believe the questions raised in Curl's book could not be asked. You know, he had more idea of uh, freedom in all of this. So we see that Buhler is a good Nazi, friendly to Christianity, while Rosenberg and Bormann were good Nazis too, but unfriendly to Christianity. And uh, Goebbels and Hitler were more practical about it, not wanting to alienate the good German Christians, but to promote unity. Uh, now, Martin Bormann, a little more about him uh, so much is said about him, and most of it is not true. Um, the worst thing that's said about Martin Bormann is that he was uh, a Soviet agent and implanted in there, and he was the one who was telling the uh, Soviets, giving them all the military plans, how Bormann would know what they were, I don't know, but um, that uh, that cost the, the war, what, what the, the Soviets knew, uh, all the uh, strategic plans uh, that the uh, that the German Wehrmacht had, uh, uh, and and it's true somebody was doing that, but that's a whole different subject. So, but it wasn't. I don't believe in any way at all that it was Martin Bormann. But he also he's called a paganist and, and a lot of things. But he was not a paganist. Uh, he he didn't like religion at all. And uh, the leading anti-clerical and anti-Christian. Uh, he was the leading uh, anti-clerical, anti-Christian during the war years of the Third Reich because um, just, uh, you know, when Hess flew to Scotland in 1941 and never came back, uh, Borman was he, he Borman was his, uh, his assistant or secretary, and so he then took over, and he, he got even an expanded job of being head of the newly created party chancellery. And this was when he wrote, a secret, when he got that position, he wrote a secret party circular to the Gauleiters, who were all the party heads throughout the country, saying uh, national socialist and Christian conceptions are incompatible. And he wrote a paragraph about why he thought so, why, why that was so. Well, immediately after it was released, Hitler suppressed it, and he ordered Bormann to retract his statement, his statements and recover all the copies he had sent out. So uh, he did this thinking he, he could he could get away with it, but uh, he uh, but Hitler said no, and um, you know Hitler didn't fire Bormann because Hitler really uh, Bormann did a great job. He was a hard worker, and Hitler valued him. So Hitler didn't fire people that easily. He didn't go every time somebody did something he didn't like. He didn't go and fire them, uh, or uh, you know, and then send them to a to the gulag or something. He he. Uh, he understood that, you know, people had uh, people were supposed to do what they thought was best. But if it was uh, went over the line, then Hitler would step in and do something about it. 
so this was this was what happened with that particular thing. Um, now, much has been made about Hitler's anti-Christian speech in his table talks. Uh, I don't accept anymore that Hitler was anti-Christian. I used to think that. Um, but it depends on what kind or part of Christianity we're talking about. I haven't read the entirety of table talks because I was reading the Trevor Roper version, and I learned that that, that is the only English well, because it is the only English translation available, and I learned that it's been tampered with, and it's widely known that it has been, especially in the sections about religion. So most of these quotes that have been uh, circulated, uh, that Hitler said this and that, you know, uh, putting down re- Christianity and and uh, saying kind of rude things about it and really being against it, um, are really uh, you have to are, are probably not true. They've they've been uh, that they've been the creation of Hugh uh, Trevor Roper and his uh, and his friends. So you know these British, they are really they really can't deal with uh, with the Germans in a fair way. My own beliefs are that Hitler did not like church Christianity, but he knew the Bible. He spoke respectfully always about Jesus Christ. And he had clearly read uh, a lot of the Bible. And he openly said many times that Jesus was not a Jew. And how how he came up with that, I think because because of how he saw Jesus' actions and what kind of a person that that he saw that he was. You know, Hitler uh, just knew things. He just made up his mind about things from his own his own sense of what we might call his own instincts. Uh, he read the Bible, and he found Jesus to be a very admirable uh, character. Uh, he was brought up, of course, with the Roman Catholic faith, and, and he uh, he was a believing he was a believing Christian uh, all of his youth. So uh, that didn't go away easily. And I think that he just recognized that uh, Jesus could not be Jewish. And he said, uh, he said from from the beginning that Jesus was an Aryan, and that is uh, something that not you people at Christogenia, but but and in Christian identity, but uh, most people in the world, of course, you know, find that totally ridiculous. Of course, he was a Jew; they just don't even question that. But uh, I think that makes an awful lot of sense. It makes sense to me. I, I don't believe it. I don't believe in the, the Jew business in the Old Testament anymore. But I, I don't know quite what to believe. But uh, one one thing that was said that I listened to a long time ago was that the Galileans uh, were not, even if you believe that these people there were Jews, these Hebrews, uh, the Galileans were not were not a, were were different from them. So there's that that some people go to for that explanation. Um, I'm just being very honest here because you know you know that not every, that it takes a while to uh, to understand what you really believe about all this. But Hitler was absolutely consistent about these things. Okay, uh, he never demoted Jesus. Jesus was Aryan, he said, and he admired Jesus, and uh, as we know from the things that I read earlier. And he never said anything positive about paganism. 
he didn't like paganism. He didn't find anything in it that interested him, and he never spoke positively about it. So uh, he was uh, he spoke positively about Christianity, though. Now he approved the idea of a Christian state church or a Reich church or a German Christian Christian German German Christian church. Uh, even though he had given up on it in practice, he saw that as as the uh, the answer what what he would have what he wanted for his his nation was this um, German Christian church. And uh, what the paganists wanted was to create a new religion that would link the individual directly to God. So even they uh, they they didn't like the the way the Christian religion was practiced by the churches, and they wanted to create a new religion that would link the individual directly to God. Well, that didn't sound bad. They um, unfiltered by an intermediary, by worldly authority. And they wanted to move Germans, uh, the Germans' spiritual center from Jerusalem or Rome to Germany. Well, this is according to this, I'm still, this is still according to this uh, Stigman Gall. Who wrote the book um, the the Holy Reich? Uh, that's way way up way up above uh, the Holy Reich, yeah. Um, and uh, so he says that one thing National Socialism wanted was a cohesive, comprehensive worldview, not splintered, not a splintered one. Religion and the spiritual life was a part of them. Uh, religion and the spiritual life was a part of the the whole world view that National Socialism was promoting and uh, that the preferred religion for the, for the most part, and certainly by, by Hitler, was Christianity. But uh, not, not, the church, not the church-led Christianity, but a uh, German Christianity, a German form, a Germanized national, nationalist form of it for Germany. So um, I've spoken almost an hour now. I'm going to click over here and see uh, how many, oh, more people are here listening. Well, it's nice to know people are listening. I hope I haven't bored you with, with the above. I've, I, I want to say a few things now. And, and right at this moment, I will say that if any of, any of you would like to call in, uh, I mean, call me and talk to me, and uh, you're welcome to do so. And in the meantime, I'll just keep going. With some more material, uh, I'm going to, uh, but you can you can break in. So uh, the, here is a speech by Joseph Goebbels. You know Goebbels was uh, he he was such a good guy and uh, he was so important and he talked about Christianity and religion quite a bit. Not that he was a you know uh, he was not a Christian leader or anything like that, but. But you find it running through his his talks and his speeches. Now, here's a speech that he gave in 1932 in Munich, and the title of it is "Make Way for Young Germany." And I'm just going to read some some uh, quotes or sections from it, which are applicable here. He says um, he's talking about uh, that he says it's remarkable that he, a Prussian, can speak in in Bavaria. Of, and he mentions these opposition politicians. Of course, this is a, a political speech against uh, the uh, because they're running for they're always running uh, for office. And 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 uh, Goebbels was from Berlin, 
and he was staying, he that was his home territory up there in Berlin. But he came to uh, Munich to give speeches um, when they were, uh, you know, pre, pre, previous to elections and so on. So um, he he was very good at it, and he says um, these gentlemen behave as if Germany ended at the main river. That's these two opposition politicians. He says they claim to be the defenders and proponents of the nation and of Christian culture, yet they stand at the side of the Prussian Marxism, of Severing Brown and Brzezinski. These are social democrat politicians. Um, he says they want the people to believe that fate of the church and the fatherland should best be put in their hands, yet they form coalitions with those who deny God and betray the fatherland. Uh, then he goes on to say, uh, the days are gone in which one could draw lines through Germany when the nation tore itself apart, when we were first of all Bavarians or Prussians, Catholics or Protestants. National socialism has brought the German people once more to an inner unity that transcends class, occupation, or church membership. And uh, he says that unity is the best guarantee of the power, strength, and future of the Reich those who benefited from our internal conflict since that the last days have come. As long as we quarreled with each other, they could carry on their cowardly political business at our expense. But now their parasitic political life is over. Now they are shouting that socialism or the church are in danger. No, says uh, Goebbels, the Marxist traitors were the ones who betrayed socialism and the church was betrayed by those who claim to defend Christianity, but in reality made coalitions with God-denying atheists, thus destroying the foundations of national and Christian morality. Uh, you know, people, critics will say, they will say, oh, they just, they just talked about the church and Christianity for, for political reasons, in order to get the votes, you know, and, and make the people, the German people, believe that they were on the side of religion when they really weren't. But as we know from what, what took place when they did get in power, this is not true. And uh, the uh, the uh, Hitler government never interfered uh, ultimately with the churches and what they wanted to do. But he what he did uh, what he did not want was the church people to tell him and the government what to do. And they did start doing that. Um, those particular, particularly those particular Protestant uh, sects that I mentioned, and the ones with Niemöller and uh, Niemöller, pronounced, and uh, Bonhoeffer, Huffer, uh, who became uh, heroes of the foreign press in order to demoralize, to make people think badly of, of the National Socialist um, rulers. So. Uh, Anyway, in this speech, uh, Goebbels goes on, we have two Catholic parties. Uh, yeah, he didn't like these Catholic parties. Has Catholicism been saved? No, the opposite is true. Ever since the Marxist parties in Germany began their fevered games, the workers have lost their jobs and their prosperity. And since the Christian Catholic parties have joined with Marxism, God-denying atheism has gone about its work unhindered. These parties, he says, are the cause of the misery of the German people. The best thing for Germany is to kick this dead system, fat hacks in the rear. Now, here's another speech from Goebbels uh, in 1931, Christmas. 
And um, it's, um, it was in the Dirt on Grief, the National Socialist newspaper that Goebbels uh, edited. And uh, he, this is just a couple extracts showing that uh, all the traditions of Christianity were were so were you know part of the German people, the German nation, and there was no desire to make any changes in this. So he writes. There, there is little we can buy this Christmas with our limited means. This was 1931. But that which we buy should at least be bought in Germany, from Germans, for Germans. The small merchant is in a desperate situation. We should support him. He must be brought along the path to the coming recovery. He may not be left behind, a victim of the collapse. This year, German men and women will shop only in German shops. They will avoid the Jewish department stores where they formerly gave their hard-earned money for trifles and fooleries, money that flowed into the channels of international Marxism to be used to further enslave German labor. However gray and empty the festival of love may be this year, we should, wherever possible, light the candle of solidarity and camaraderie in the midst of social darkness. Then he says, each penny we spend should find its way to a German cash register. It should give German businessmen and merchants the possibility to survive this difficult winter. It should favor German industry and German labor. We want to see only German goods on the Christmas table. Let the Jews drown in the trifles and fooleries of their department stores. We will go to our racial brethren and do the good work of fraternal brotherly love, thereby having in these holy days the consolation that we are following the first command of our heavenly teacher. Well, uh, another one. You are Hi. Hi. Hello, Mr. Jager. I can't hear you very well. You can't. I'm not muted or anything. Are you sure? Well, you just sound like I'm hearing my own voice coming back. Okay. How's this? Can you hear me now? No. Well, go ahead and speak. Who is it? Okay, now, is my is, is all fine now? Am, am I all right? Well, not to me, but I, I can make it out. I think we need to. Carol? Carol? I'm just going to go ahead with my uh, with with my talking because I can't I, that call is so there's something wrong with it, um, at least for me. On the German people, Hello. Hear, this is from a book of material for Hitler Youth Leaders, 1937. Uh, is Mona is Mona on the line? All right. Chapter, uh, this is a, a single chapter from this book on the German people and its territory from uh, a booklet of material for Hitler Youth Leaders in 1937. 
and it's uh, the chapter is Human Inequality. And it talks of physical and spiritual differences and the problems that came from mixing races in the past. So I'm giving this as an example of what they were giving to the youth um, at this time. Even today, National Socialism's racial thinking has implacable opponents. Freemasonry, Marxism, and the Christian churches make common cause in this matter. World Masonry conceals its Jewish plans of world domination behind slogans of humanity. The Jew and the Turk can achieve its degrees just as well as the Christian. Marxism has the same goals as Freemasonry. To conceal its true aims, it used the slogan of equality, freedom, and brotherhood. We know that is the from the French Revolution. Under Jewish leadership, Marxism wants to unite everything that has a human face. The Christian Church, above all the Roman Catholic Church, rejects racial thinking by claiming that all men are equal before God. See, this is this is what is wrong with the church teaching. All who are of the Christian faith, all who are of the Christian faith, be they Jew, a Negro from the jungle, or white, are better and more valuable to it than a German who is not a Christian. Saving faith, saving faith is the only bond. So, um the pro- a problem that National Socialism had with the churches was its universalism. And as as they became universalistic, and as they do because they, they want members from anywhere and everywhere, and they say all men are equal before God, then uh, their, their uh, African members or even Jews who convert to the Christian faith are more valuable to the church because they are now a Christian than a German who is not a Christian, and this was not this was not acceptable. Uh, this is not acceptable kind of thinking for for in National Socialism. So proof that the Roman Catholic Church is acting against its better knowledge in rejecting racial thinking is clear from the following facts: There was once a danger that Jesuit goals would be subverted or redirected by Jewish members. The result was a ban on Jews becoming Jesuits. Today, the danger is long past, and the church wants to forget about it. I thought that was interesting because uh, it's admitting that um, that once um, they realized that uh, that Jews were becoming Jesuits. And so uh, the Jews had already infiltrated the Jesuit uh, order. And then uh, they said, well, now we're going to have a ban on Jews becoming Jesuits. But it was pro- too late, obviously. But and now today uh, they no longer uh, they supposedly have Jews becoming Jesuits, but then uh, they want to forget that they ever did. They don't want to bring that up. Well, uh, so it, it goes on. But they're telling this to the to the youth. Why do we find the nonsense about human equality in Freemasonry, Marxism, and the Christian Church? All three are more or less striving for world power. They therefore have to be international. Well, that's what I was saying earlier. Uh, but it's because they want world power. Well, they want all these. They want all these converts because the more, the more they have in the world, the more powerful they Can anybody hear me? Am I? Am I? Is my volume okay? Yeah. Into the chat window now because my speakers are uh, completely muted, so I don't have a clue uh, unless I see something typed in. Well, I, I can hear you. 
Debbie, you can hear me I okay? I can hear you as long as I don't talk. Go ahead and talk. Go ahead and say what you want to say. What is your name? Please, somebody just type in and say it's okie dokie for me to start speaking. Come on, please. Okay. Uh, still distorting. Joe, I wonder what's wrong. This this hasn't happened before. Uh, I haven't had I know, I know. Uh, where where's where's uh, Matt uh, and, uh, and talk to before? Okay, let me kind of explain uh, what it is that I'd like to uh, get across. This will just take a couple minutes. Uh, Go ahead. I've been very upset with the criticisms that have been leveled against Mengele and the idea that he was both a doctor and a monster at one and the same time. So, the reason I'm calling in is I wanted to find for you the Lubeck experiment. Uh, Lubeck was a city in Germany, and in the 1800s, roughly around 1841 or so, uh, some people say 1815, what happened was is that the uh, uh, Jews were expelled from the city of Lübeck, Germany. Now, as you know, uh, before Hitler came to power, the Jews became inordinately powerful in Germany. Uh, their evil just uh, uh, fell over the land like a, a cloud of gas. And what happened was uh, they got complete control of the public health system. So a coven, a cabal of Jewish pediatricians went into uh, the city of Lübeck, Germany, and they told the Germans there, there were no Jews living in Lübeck, they told the Germans, they said, we're going to inoculate and vaccinate your children against the tuberculosis organism, okay? So this was like a vaccine experiment. Well, the German people went along with it because Germans think that other people are telling the truth, you know, they're kind of naive. And what happened was, what happened was that uh, 81 German children died within a few short months. So the German people went to the Jewish pediatricians and they said, uh, why are our children dying? You said they were going to be vaccinated against tuberculosis and now 81 of our children uh, are dead. And the Jews looked at the uh, uh, German people, somebody gasped, and they said, we had to have a positive control. And the German people said, what? And the Jews explained, they said, well, what we had to do is uh, we had to take some of the kids and give them live organisms to see if the organisms would really kill them, and if they killed them, how long it would take. So that's what we needed. That's true Jewish science is a positive control. Well, uh, the German people uh, were pretty upset by that because actually this was an act of murder. So as they become more enraged, enraged, then what the Jews started saying was that they didn't do it intentionally, but the labels slipped off the jars. If you can imagine a lie like that. They said, oh, well, the, you know, the vials were on the tray and some of the doctors got mixed up because the labels slipped off, you know, uh, which was a crazy idea. So anyway, these Jewish doctors, they killed 81 children. And I believe two or three of the Jewish pediatricians were put in jail for manslaughter. And I think one of them died in prison. I don't know if he was beaten to death or, or what happened to him. But that's really the reason, that's really the reason that the Jewish people claim that the Germans did horrible experiments on their children in the detention centers. There were no horrible experiments. Because after this, this, this enormous nightmare that the German people went through, they passed Nuremberg Laws, and the Nuremberg Laws of 1933 said that no experimentation could be performed on humans without prior experimentation on animals. 
what what it is is you see the cross in front, and the swastika is behind the cross part. So you see the arms of the swastika uh, on each corner that the cross makes as it crosses itself. And it's called uh, the book is called the uh, the cross of Christ and the swastika. So I'm going to read some of this. The cross of Christ and the swastika do not need to oppose each other and must not do so, but rather they can and should stand together. One should not dominate the other, but rather each should maintain its own meaning and significance. The cross of Christ points toward heaven and admonishes us, remember that you are Christian people, carried by the eternal love of the Heavenly Father, free through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, sanctified by the power of God's Spirit. The swastika, however, points to the world as a divine creation and admonishes us, Remember that you are German, born in German territory, to parents of German blood, filled with the German spirit and essence, formed according to German nature. Both together, however, the cross of Christ and the swastika admonish us. Remember that you are German Christian people and should become ever more whole German Christian people and remain so. This was written on Easter Day in 1934. Now, it goes on... uh, some history of the church elections in summer 1933 have shown that the Hanoverian Provincial Church, the overwhelming majority of church members, affirmed the German Christians and therefore elected German Christian men to church bodies or church boards. Um, The new Provincial Church Council, according to the Constitution, is responsible for leading the Provincial Church. At first it consisted of 62 members. Well, I'm going to leave out some of this. I'm trying to explain what the German Christian Church actually was by those who were were in favor of it. Since um, it says here, since the German Christians in the new provincial council had received over 83% of the votes, they had not only the right but also the inescapable duty to carry out the will of church members. As leader of the German Christians, I had no doubt that uh, the hour had come for the German Christians to take on the leadership of our Hanoverian provincial church. Indeed, it, uh, to take it over clearly and with clear goals, which would allow for no half measures or compromises. This was not only consistent with my own desires, but also because the confidence of church members obligated us to do so. We were ready for action and dared leave the judgment of our attitudes and our actions to the Lord of history and the church, to him only and, and no one else, least of all to those who during our people's years of battle did not stand by our side. He who wishes to understand the attitudes and actions of the German Christians must not forget where we came from and what we carried in our heart. For the most part, we German Christians came out of the great battles of the German struggle for freedom. Uh, He means, I believe, uh, the World War. Some fighting for years in the front ranks, on the streets, and in meetings. Day and night we marched at the side of our comrades in brown shirts were attacked by the hatred of the red mob of satanic Bolshevism and its bourgeois allies. We German Christians came from the battle for the life and death of our people. We came from the sacrifice of Germany's youth from over 300 graves over which the unwritten words of Jesus shined. No one has greater love than this, that he give his life for his friends. That was a quote. We came out of a time of restless, selfless struggle for our German people's comrades and for the soul of the German people with bitter pain in our hearts because we were not understood, 
not understood even by many who bore office and responsibility within the church. Lack of understanding was the least we encountered, us pastors who dared to do the unheard of, to put on brown shirts and become active in politics. One did not see that our struggle was something entirely different than the politics of the past and that the National Socialist German Workers' Party only had the form of a party, but inwardly was, is, and will remain the real breakthrough of the true people's community. As Christians, we put ourselves then in the middle of Hitler's German freedom movement because we were convinced that God called us to it and demanded it of us. How many national socialists back then, during the battle against the Satan of Bolshevism, waited for a clear word from the church, from those who bore office and responsibility in the church? But, with few exceptions, we waited in vain. To the contrary, we were accused of being heathens or were rejected because our language was too crude or because the hatred of our opponents involved us in fistfights or gun battles nearly every day. They adopted the viewpoint of the Jewish press and that a part of us, part of the so-called bourgeois press, which always excitedly claimed that the Nazis were to blame for these disturbances and fights. I remember how after one of those bloody Sundays in Altona, a pastor reproachfully said to me, Well, why do you go there when you know that the Reds do not want you? I was shaken by such lack of understanding, which could not understand that by marching through the Red streets where German workers lived, we were showing them that we belonged to them, even if several hundred bestial and wild murderers lurked on the rooftops. We went our own lonely way, straight ahead, letting ourselves be accused of being troublemakers or rowdies or charged with being blasphemers when we proclaimed, we see in Adolf Hitler the Fuhrer sent to us by God. Today everyone sees that, he puts in parentheses, today everyone sees that and is probably no longer blasphemy. But then continues, but back then, how often was I attacked when I preached in meetings that the cross of Christ and the swastika had to stand together? It was the same with my old fellow fighters, Heinrich Meyer Aurich in East Friesland and Matiat and Jacob Hogson in South Hanover. Those are names of places, obviously. Still, we fought, even if the church did not understand us, and went our hard way because we felt obligated as Christians to our German brothers and sisters. It was our faith that made battling for and following Hitler a holy duty. We saw terrifying clarity without any doubt that the enemy of the German people, Bolshevism, knew very well that a Soviet Germany could come only if it succeeded in separating and removing the German from his faith and his God, destroying, eliminating, or making ridiculous everything holy in the German. In the German. Bolshevism's campaign was satanic on the fronts of politics, the economy, culture, the arts, entertainment, and the press. The battle, however, could only be decided on the battleground on which Hitler stood. Therefore, we stood by his side. There were only a few of us from the realm of the church who openly stood beside Hitler as believers and fighters. We old fighters thanked God with pride that he called us and opened our hearts to his call. This is where we German Christians came from. One may not forget that. Then one will understand that the German Christians cannot limit their activity to correcting a few minor failings in church life, but rather must transform the entire relationship between the church and the people. Thus, our primarily, primary demand, the cross of Christ and the swastika, must have a positive relationship. In other words, and I hear some 
of their affirmations. The church must affirm without reservation the German people's communities, the German people's communities growing out of national socialism, and at the same time must do everything it can to make up for what has been neglected or ignored in the past. Uh, the church must affirm without reservation Adolf Hitler's total state, the last bulwark against the Satan of Bolshevism. And it says a few more things about that. The church must affirm without reservation the Fuhrer of the National Socialist, Adolf Hitler, the Chancellor of the German Reich. He expects the church to help build the Third Reich and has proclaimed that National Socialist German Workers' Party, which now forms the state, wants to stand on the foundation of positive Christianity. It is the task of the church to create and provide this foundation. It is the content of the absolute affirmation that the church has to make if it really wants to be a people's church. And... Uh, so on. Um, he goes on to talk all about uh, some meetings that they had and what what took place and so on. But that gives an idea. I think that's all I'll read of that. That gives an idea of voice very very long of the uh, of what of of the feeling of so many who wanted to form this German uh, Christian church but uh, were were prevented from doing so. So um, another thing, another very good, uh, let me go there, um, some more information about what the National Socialists did for the churches is that uh, when, when the National Socialists took power in January 1933, through its state organs, it placed the following sums from public taxes at the disposal of both churches, that is, the Roman Catholic churches and the uh, Lutheran churches. In the year 1933, it gave the churches 130 million Reichsmarks. In the 1934, 170 million Reichsmarks. In 1935, 250 million Reichsmarks. In 1936, 320 million Reichsmarks. 1937, 400 million. And in 1938, 500 million. Well, um the it was the uh the in germany the the state helped to support the churches with a church tax but now i'm not sure if the church tax was from the church and then this was extra money i think that the that the state gave to to the churches to help them uh because it 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 wanted there to be churches you know it wanted there to be religion it wanted to to help the people uh with their so so different from the communists and and Stalin. I mean, totally totally different. Um, but even so, uh, they they weren't always so grateful. Um, now uh, there's an article called "National Socialism in the Protestant Church" that um, very long. And I forget now, oh, here's the part about Pastor Niemöller. All right. Um, talking about the German Christians again. Um, see, there's, I don't know where to. The introduction of a ministry for church affairs under Herr Curl, we've talked about him, and its activities up till now show that the state does not intend to influence in one way or another the religious problems and the church struggle within the evangelical church. The aim of the state is to reach a solution of the current questions through Protestantism itself. 
These principles of the state's policy are very much to be welcomed from the Protestant point of view. Uh, somehow solving their problems, they had problems. All Protestant groups who have a real will to constructive cooperation and who are at all interested in a natural solution of the church situation are therefore working actively in the church committee. I think this is the German church committee. The great, the great, a great part of the German Christians has already consented to cooperate in the church committee. The main body is now divided into two rather different groups. Now, the, uh, it says the greater part is the, the confessional front under the leadership of a, a bishop and a doctor, and the radical section of the confessional front, led by Pastor Niemöller, will have nothing to do with the church committee on principle and refuses to cooperate with it. These radical confessionalists have hitherto been unable to find a way of approach to national socialist principles and are therefore incapable of understanding the national revival in Germany. Um, the, this negative attitude can become dangerous when religious reasons are used as a pretext for a struggle against the state itself. The state has the duty to take the necessary measures to secure internal peace within the nation. Well, you know, that means uh, they're using, the, the, the religious people are using religion as a pretext to go against the state. Or, uh, in this case, the, uh, the uh, Hitler regime, which was considered a folk nation. You know, it was against, against the, 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 the people or the people's government. Um, so, uh, but this is the way they saw it. So, unfortunately, these events have been re represented abroad in a way which greatly exaggerates their actual importance. They do not result, as has been assumed, from a spiritual struggle between Protestantism and the state, but are only individual conflicts on the detail of church government between certain persons and the state with which the great majority of church members and the church itself have nothing to do. So they're saying that these, these, these uh, hard-headed ones um, get a lot of attention abroad in the press, in the press abroad and with people abroad, uh, but and and the importance in Germany, their importance in Germany has been uh, exaggerated. And uh, here it says the German faith movement had at first a great success, and today though it's declining um, rapidly. So uh, this is this is what can happen when you get uh, with with those who just refuse to, you know, not not everybody's going to accept it. So we have this. We have this today. We have this always, this struggle. Uh, it says, this fruitful struggle of ideas and their protagonists may go on for decades. Its ultimate results cannot be foreseen in detail. But its effect will almost certainly be a deep-rooted religious revival of the German nation. Well, that did not, that did not take place, and uh, the struggle continues. We are still struggling, um, and uh, we therefore, in you know, seems to me we have to be, fighters, and we need a fighting Christianity, not uh, not an internationalist uh, communist Christianity. So that's kind of what I've been presenting tonight. I've got some more more that I could read, but I think an hour and a half of this is, is certainly enough. Uh, I'd like to ask again if anybody wants to call and say anything, you're welcome to do so.
before I end the program. I thank you all for listening. I see there's been a lot of commentary here, which I will read afterwards, and uh, there are a lot of listeners, and I really do thank you for coming for coming and listening. Once again, if you want to say anything, uh, I don't know if, if we're having a problem with the with the sound or not, but uh, you can try calling. Well, I don't hear anything from anyone, so um, I will say good night to you. Uh, I thank you very much once again for coming on, uh, for coming here and listening to my to my program. I'll be on the I'll be on with the program at the Heretics Hour on VOR on Monday evening, and I hope to start some programs on TalkShoe if I can just find the time to get get it all arranged, um, because I like to be able to just talk about different subjects. Uh, whenever it comes up and put on a program and advertise it and uh, see how it goes. So uh, once again, everyone, God bless you all, and Bill will be back next week. Bye for now. This is Carolyn saying goodbye. Good night.